Welcome to a special live episode of AML Conversations. In this edition, we join AML RightSource Vice Chairman John Byrne as he moderates a panel of veteran AML experts during the 2019 ACAMS MoneyLaundering.com 24th Annual International AML and Financial Crime Conference in Hollywood, Florida. The panel, made up of Chuck Taylor, AML RightSource Executive Vice President and Head of Financial Crime Advisory, Rick Small, BBNT Executive Vice President and Director of Financial Crimes, and Dennis Lormel, President of DML Associates, review community-specific topics like career progression, current AML legislation, as well as Chuck's unique take on the ideal valuation process for SARS. We thoroughly enjoyed the live aspect of the panel interactions and hope you will too. Now sit back and enjoy AML Conversations. to be with Right Source. They've enabled me to continue to do the podcasts and blogs that I started with uh, ACAMP. So I'm, I'm very, always been excited to be able to talk to leaders in the community and uh, the, both the blogs and the, uh, uh, the, the podcasts have enabled me to do that. Just a couple of quick uh, recent podcasts. We did one uh, with Don Ford. I think I mentioned this morning, the head of IRSCI a dynamite person, true public servant. And uh, we just posted that late last week. I think you'll find that pretty compelling. It's the 100th year of IRSCI, which is something we all should acknowledge as AML practitioners. And one that will go up sometime this week, there's a variety of issues that we all try to tackle. And one of them that challenges us constantly is cyber. We're talking about cyber this morning. So I was able to sit down with uh, um, my, my alma mater's Marquette University. They actually created a cyber center like a number of other universities have done. So I talked to the director of that center and asked him about uh, their curriculum and about how they work with the private sector. So I think you'll find that hopefully equally interesting and, and compelling. Uh, what I want to do is what I normally do in these podcasts and have a conversation, have a discussion. Uh, the way I do these is... When I sit down with somebody, we never edit. We just turn it on and go. And I find that's always the best the best way to have conversation. And it sounds uh, simple, but a lot of times somebody that I don't know says, gee, what are we going to discuss? I said, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about your career or we're going to talk about your agency and you're expert enough. You'll be fine. And they all are. It's great. So when I asked these gentlemen to do this, uh, they obviously readily said they'd be happy to. I actually have already interviewed uh, Rick and Dennis in previous podcasts back at uh, when I was doing it for AM, ABA, uh, for uh, ACAMS, AML Now. I was also at ABA in a lot of places like that. Uh, so what I want to do today, some of the things that uh, we're going to talk about, I, I want all three of them to give us a little bit of career advice for those of you that are either um, just starting in space or trying to figure out new career paths. I'm always interested in how other people both got here and what they uh what they see as uh, things that they could recommend others look at to do in AML. Then I want to talk a bit about the AML legislative uh, packages that are out there. We talked we talked somewhat about that this morning, but there are some revisions. I do see there's a 50 to 60% chance that we'll see some final legislation this year, which I wouldn't have said uh, the past couple of years and really hasn't happened since the Patriot Act. So we're going to talk a bit about that and their thoughts. How to handle... Uh, the additional challenges that we all have. If we did this interview 20 years ago, basically it's record-keeping, reporting, and drugs, right? Uh, now it's uh, not only terrorism, it's elder abuse, it's human trafficking. Uh, Frank mentioned a session we're going to do tomorrow on antiquities uh, and art theft, which is 
also pretty compelling and a horrific, uh, the, the results of those cause horrific terrorist activities in and of themselves. I want to get these folks to talk about how they handle those additional um, challenges. And then one of the constant themes for ACAMS, the constant themes for me in my career is working closely with law enforcement. It's so important. They're such important partners of ours as one of the primary stakeholders. I want to talk to these gentlemen about how uh, how they recommend doing that. And then happy to take your questions as we go through this. So let me start with the youngest guy on the panel. Me? Uh, and that would not be right. <laughs> and also a gentleman who clearly uses a sundial to check time. <laughs> no more jokes about you being like uh, Chuck Taylor. I've known Chuck probably for at least, I think, 10 years. But Chuck is one of the newer people in the AML space, although he'll, he'll tell you not that new. He also has... Um, a couple of other things that he's done for the community. He's the chair of the West Coast AML program and conference and forum. Uh, those of you that have participated in West Coast AML, you know that that's uh, a program where law enforcement gets together with the bankers and other AML professionals. And for three days, a lot of case studies, a lot of uh, not a lot of lecture, but a lot. Of, let, let's figure out better ways of working together and Chuck's instrumental there. He also just stepped down to come here from City National Bank, a bank that, among other things, had a pretty specific clientele. And I know so he had to, to learn that space as well. But let me start with this, Chuck. Um, if I'm coming to you and asking you, hey, I've, I've been in AML for a year or less. How did, how, did you, how did you both keep engaged and what would you recommend I continue to do if I want to stay in this area? Lots of things come to mind. I, I guess, first off, I, I'm sorry I'm late. I'm kind of late. <laughs> like John said, I'm the new guy on this panel. If, if, if you were going to make a Mount Rushmore of, of AML dudes, I think these three would probably be on it with, with a couple others. So they're the OGs. I'm just a G, I guess. Um, but I've had a lot of people ask me that question. And just a, a little bit weird, my career path, I ended up being a BSA officer by mistake. Um, so I would say... Just volunteer for stuff. Um, you know, do things that get you out in the, into the community. I initially thought I was going to be a prosecutor. I went to law school and thought I was going to put bad guys away. When I was in law school, I interned uh, for a deputy DA in Santa Barbara, California, and she was in charge of sex crimes and child abuse. And it was really fun. Well, I, I guess I can't say fun. It was rewarding putting bad guys away. But I decided that I didn't really want to live with that kind of stuff. Some of the things I had to see and deal with were just not really that fun. So I went and took it to a temp agency and said, hey, just find me a job. And I ended up working at a bank. Uh, I took a job as a compliance analyst, having no idea what that meant. And about 90 days later, they came to me and they said, we have this thing called BSA. We have this really angry regulator that came in and gave us 26 MRAs, which at that time was okay. That was, I think, 2002. You could have 26 MRAs and not get a C&D. Um, and they said, we need somebody to kind of run this program and fix it. And they let me, I was in the first group of folks that got certified in 2003. So I, I was an OG in regards to getting certified, I guess. Um, they let me create my own FIU. I implemented a system, all that kind of stuff and really liked it and ended up doing it. And I've told this story before, that, but the only reason that I've got any kind of stature in this community is because of John. I, I would give him some props. And it's by mistake again, is because I volunteered to do something. So I'm circling back to what I said in the beginning. 
there was a, a CBA conference where he was doing a panel and somebody, I think, backed out at the last minute. And I think he called somebody and said, who's in Southern California that can you know, tie their shoes and come do a panel with me? And I got to do that panel with John. And I think I did a, a, a good job on it because he invited me to do other stuff. Well, <laughs> there wasn't any bad feedback. No, it was, no, it was excellent. Yeah. But so I, I would say volunteer for stuff. I was I was in the original group that started the Southern California ACAMS group. That was great. Um, I've been a part of the West Coast AML forum. And, and Tim White, who's sitting here, was was the previous president or excuse me, chair. And filling his shoes were, were really tough. He did a lot with that. But I would just say volunteer for stuff. Get out there and 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 you know meet people in the community, and you'll you'll end up doing other stuff and, and furthering your career. Now that's that's great advice, and obviously ACAMS is a perfect vehicle for that. With the, the various chapters, participate in those events. As we know, Carla Monterosa from ACAMS today is always looking for uh, good content in different angles. So don't think, oh, I've never written anything before. Maybe raise your hand and say, I'd like to try a particular issue and work with the staff there and do that in any of the associations that you're involved in. But 100% agree with Chuck volunteering and getting engaged and if it if it takes if it works for you then i think you'll find this is a as we all have a, a career that we're very proud of rick well i want to ask you a similar question one of the things that uh you're so well known for is mentoring i know that you've been at different institutions obviously but you can't run into somebody who hasn't worked for you that said not only are you you know okay to work with but more importantly the mentoring and um, elevating people when you see talent, working with people that you want to see succeed. To talk a bit about that, but also, again, you didn't fall into this episode of happenstance. You were a prosecutor, so sort of was a logical career path. But uh, talk a bit about that and also working with sort of the next generation. Right. Thank you. So, like Chuck, I wanted to put bad people away. Luckily, I didn't start like you did because I think I would have had the same reaction. I actually started in antitrust work for the Justice Department and got bored, moved on to the Organized Crime Strike Force, um, and then decided we wanted to be closer to our family, so uh, moved back to the East Coast, and I ended up at the Treasury Department and got a call one day from a guy at the Federal Reserve. I didn't actually know what the Federal Reserve was. I had kind of heard about it, um, but he said, um, and, and this goes to, to your point about being knowledgeable, and he, when when I spoke to him, he said, "Look, we're trying to do something with BSA AML. We thought going to the Treasury Department to find somebody would be good, but we don't want to take the best person from the Treasury Department. That's why I'm calling you." <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and we're still very good friends, um, um, but that's how I got into it. So I got into it. Um, similarly, I, I kind of backed into it. Spent a number of years at the Federal Reserve and actually thought I would end my career there um, because I really enjoyed it. And then I got a cold call one day from um, from a bank and, you know, sort of similar to Chuck, they were about to have a big problem, which they did after I got there, but they knew they were going to have it. Um, and that's how I started in the AML space uh, on, the, on the private sector side. Um, I, you know, a little more specific about in terms of how do you advance this day and age? So I think less and less the experience that I have had coming into it is going to play into doing really well. I think understanding how banks work, understanding how fintech works, if that's where you are, 
and being able to both function and prove your worth in terms of continuing to take on more responsibility. Um, and those are the those are the folks that I see. And, and John, to your question about mentoring, um, I love to see folks that come in. They may not know a lot about this, but they are very interested in learning. And I, it's not rocket science. I mean, I, you know, I think we'd all agree on this, that um, if you spend the time to learn it, um, it's something that you can do and you can do very well. I love what I do in the AML space. And um, interestingly, um, I've gotten offers from time to time to come to consider, for example, a chief compliance officer role. I don't want to do it. I mean, that just doesn't sound fun to me. I love doing this. If I wasn't doing this, I'm pretty sure I'd be back in the government. Uh, but, you know, I really want to focus on, I think, What's incredibly important today is technology. So for those of you that don't have a good background in technology and you want to stay in this space, I think it's going to become more and more important. You know, we heard the comptroller this morning talking a little bit about, um, you know, how they've got the innovation that they're working on and Lisa Arquette from the FDIC that they've got an innovation center. I really think technology is going to take off in the next five, six years in terms of how it will impact us. It's not... My view is not quite there yet, uh, but understanding how that all works will put you in a really good position to continue in this area and succeed. So two things, volunteer and be curious. Be curious about your area and even expand that area. I think that's the one thing that we will talk about this later with the expansion of the challenges that we face. Who would have guessed five, six years ago we would be talking about human trafficking? talking about, like I said, elder abuse, issues like that, that obviously affect our communities and affect us all day to day. So being curious, um, I don't think you have to be a tech expert, as Rick mentioned. I think you can learn some of those things. I remember mentioning this to another banker a few years ago at a conference saying, what skill sets are you looking for in AML? And he said, a mix. I can get the compliance people, the legal and the accounting background folks. They're great. I can get them. But if I can learn, if I can get people who understand banking, who understand products, who understand tech, I can train them up on the other stuff potentially. And so if I have a mix of those people on staff, there's value. So there's some place that you could find that you'll you'll be interested in. I guarantee you, because there's so much that what we do as a community basically does save lives. And so that alone should make you interested every day. Now. Uh, I want to turn to Dennis, and Dennis is unique in a number of ways, not only because he's a Met and Jet fan and suffers constantly for that, but <laughs> mainly because an extensive career in law enforcement, and once he left law enforcement, his work closely with the financial sector and with law enforcement cases, he has stayed engaged, not only stayed engaged, anytime, sadly when there's a terrorist attack, which we all hate, Within a couple of days, he's written a new story about it, a new angle, something else that he can pick up based on his years of experience that we as practitioners could say, yeah, actually, if we had looked at these financial footprints in that particular case. So he's always raising his hand, not just to volunteer, but to provide us with that, uh, the, the content of his expertise. But Dennis, I think, as many of you know, had a long career in the FBI, was the first head of TFOS. Um, we, we met actually before 9-11. He's known Rick a lot, even longer than that. Um, but uh, since he's left the government, 
he's probably produced even more value to the AML community. So I guess I have a couple of questions for you, Dennis. One is when you left the government, sort of what was your thought process? And since leaving the government, talk, expand a bit on what I said about how you stay engaged in both policy debates as well as uh, trainings. I know that's not all that you do, but that's a lot of what you do. Well, John, thank you for the introduction and the kind words. Um, I, I'm very passionate about this space, and, and I really love what we do, and I really enjoy the people in this space. And I think um, when I was in law enforcement, I'll start there, and when I was in law enforcement, and to Rick's point before about um, mentoring and everything, I, I think one of the things that I want to do is give back. I was very fortunate throughout my career to have been located in situations and around major investigations that, that I was able to contribute to. And I gained a reputation along the way in the FBI of probably being one of the foremost uh, financial investigators, even though my wife won't let me hear the checkbook. <laughs> 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 or or using things computer. like that. Yeah, yeah. And the people who work for me tried to keep me away from the computer. Uh, but, but having had the ability and, and, and to be in those positions uh, where you were around these events and being able to dive into them and, and really learn as you went and learn by your mistakes more than not. I like to give back, so I love to mentor. And one of the things I was most proud of in the Bureau at the end of my career was the fact of how many people who are now senior executives in the FBI are people I mentor. So I like that. And the same thing to, you know, what, what, what Rick does, um, what Chuck talked about, um, being able to mentor people. I, I get a lot of inquiries from folks because you know, you, you and I, we've taught college classes together. And I like to do that, and, and I like to do training, and, and people will ask me and ask advice, especially young people. And, and that, that, that really kind of reinvigorates me. Um, if, if you do the math, I spent 31 years in the government for the last 14. I've been a consultant, so that, that makes me an official dinosaur. <laughs> and, and so to be able to, get, to give back and to feel reinvigorated is really important. And... The other thing I, I like, well, the, the reason I stay so connected with law enforcement the way I do and with the financial industry is what I've come to realize throughout my career is that we, we, we have different perspectives. You know, the people in the financial institutions, and like when Rick and I first met, for instance, he was with the Fed and I was at the FBI. We came at the same problem with very different perspectives, and, and oftentimes that causes friction, and what we needed to do or what we need to do better, and I learned from that case, is, is to find that middle ground where you can better work with people. And so I look for that, and I know that I have that unique perspective now because I had the law enforcement perspective, and I saw everything through the law enforcement light. Now I do consulting work much more closely with the financial services industry, and it's not that I didn't understand what folks did, but I didn't understand their pain points, and I really didn't share that perspective. Now I share that perspective. And when I go back to law enforcement, I say to them, I, I wish you guys, I wish I could be back now because if I knew then what I know now, I'd have been dangerous when I was an agent. And so I try to impart that back to people. And, and you know, in the, in the point when you're talking about uh, your career and what to look for, um, one of the things I, I think we need to do is find that niche that we can make a real good contribution and feel good about what we're doing. When I first left the FBI, 
I'll share with folks. You know, I, I felt a lot of accomplishment in the Bureau. I did some really good things, and we, we got some great results. And you, you felt a real sense of accomplishment and achievement, something to be really proud of. When I first left, I took a pretty good job at a Fortune 200 company. And I don't think I was more miserable my whole life. And one of the problems there was not that they were bad people, but the tone at the top really wasn't compliance-oriented. When I found out very quickly is they wanted my name. They didn't want me to do anything. And, and so that became a bit of a problem, and I left. And what I realized during that time period was I wanted to be back in the AML space, and now I'm doing it as a consultant. And again, I found that sense of accomplishment along the way. And a lot of it has to do with the interactions between law enforcement and, and again, trying to be the bridge between the two perspectives. As I continue, just if you do want to ask questions on the mobile app, it's obviously on your mobile device, go to the conference app and then select the agenda on the homepage. You'll find this session, scroll to the bottom of the screen and send in your questions. I'll get them here on my tablet. If you want to do it old-fashioned way and raise your hand, we'll repeat the question. So that's uh, that's obviously also fine. I want to shift gears a little bit. We did talk. I didn't want to actually this morning. I didn't want to pin down the regulators specifically on the legislation because we know that for the most part they can't give you their views unless the agency has officially opined on a piece of legislation. So that's why I sort of worded it more high level this morning. We don't have those restrictions. So I want to talk a bit. As I mentioned earlier, I think there's a real, more than a real possibility that there may be legislation because like in the old days, it seems somewhat bipartisan. Whenever we used to do money laundering related legislation in the 80s and 90s, it was never an R or D issue. It was bipartisan. And so for the most part, the financial sector was able to weigh in on issues and both sides would hear you out. So that was not a problem. It's sort of, it's a different environment, as we all know, without without being too facetious. But I think I sense recently that there's some focus on both sides, sort of the business community and those that feel that the financial community maybe is getting away with some things where they both think that it's time for potential reform. Potential reform could take a couple of formats, right? It could be some reduction in burden, but it, it could be some add-ons to the real estate industry, the art dealers, and some others that, frankly, don't have the same obligations that most of you do have. So there is some possibility. But there is a number of proposals. I want to talk about the one that I think res seemingly resonates the most, and that's a beneficial ownership registry. So as we all know, we heard the comptroller uh, allude to this this morning. With the CDD rule, that was designed in part to be a response to the lack of uh, relevant requirements under U.S. law when we were evaluated. 10 plus years ago by FATF, right? So the CDD rule was designed to do that. But as we all said, when the rule was being proposed, the rule by itself isn't going to solve this problem because you still have Delaware, Montana, Nevada, places where they'll license anything that moves. Let's face it. It's the, the due diligence and the vigilance is almost non-existent. In fact, um, there was a study done um, just a couple of weeks ago, I moderated a panel in D.C. of folks from Global Financial Integrity and a couple of other organizations that frankly don't think the financial sector does enough. But what they talked about was not that. What they talked about, and this study is really interesting, it said it's harder to get a library card in each of the 50 states. The requirements to get a library card harder than to incorporate. That's nuts. 
That's also a great elevator conversation, right? If you want to get the point across, when they did that, I said to them, you know, whether I agree with you or not, this is great. Because you go to any member of Congress or somebody in, in, in a quick conversation and say, you know, it's harder to get a, a library card than it is to incorporate them. You go, you got to be kidding. But they weren't. The stats back that up. So long-winded way of saying, unless we get tighter rules on incorporation documentation, what does it matter what we do with the CDD rule? So I know that internationally and in some other countries, they've talked about a registry. And one of the proposals says that individual companies, when they incorporate, would have to um, send their documentation to FinCEN. Leaving aside whether FinCEN has a bandwidth to do it, talk a bit about what would happen if that was an efficient way of doing it and what's the thought process in the industry? So I think it's a phenomenal idea if it gets rid of our beneficial owner requirement. I mean, I think it would be perfect. And we should be doing that. We absolutely should because one of the things, and I'm not sure if the, if the controller didn't get to, to sort of finish his thought process this morning, but um, he did make the statement that the biggest challenge is validating that beneficial ownership information. And that's not a requirement. So, you know, one of the one of the things that always caught my attention is I get that it would be nice to understand who the beneficial owners are, and I get that it's good information for both us to have to do our due diligence, and if by chance law enforcement needs it, it's available for them. It shouldn't be our responsibility to do that for law enforcement. The government should be doing that. And the fact that we aren't validating, and I'm not advocating that we should because it's impossible to do that, but the fact that we aren't, what are we really getting? So we all spent a lot of money. We all put a lot of effort into getting the requirements in over the last year and a half or so uh, before the before it became uh, uh, effective in May of last year. But is it really doing anything? We're all getting examined for it, I would assume. Um, so we all have to have those processes and procedures. But again, what's it doing for us? I just don't think it's there. So I think it would be great if Congress came and mandated that the government was responsible for doing this and took away our requirement. Chuck, before you left uh, to come to Right Source, obviously you had to manage the CDD implementation. So two questions. One is, you know, how challenging was that? You were kind enough to to share with us uh, last year where we had a roundtable and talked through this. And then secondly, to what Rick commented on, what would be the value proposition if that information had to go directly from incorporated companies somewhere else. And I think it, I would add, you want to get rid of the rule too, because if you're doing both, then what's, then what's the point? Yes, please get rid of the rule. Hmm. Just for, so for the, the practitioners in the room, the folks that are collecting the information and had to put the, the requirements in place, are you really excited about all the bad guys you're catching? Because yes. of the beneficial ownership rules. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. How tons. How many bad guys have you caught so far? Because they Who's they saying? willingly disclosed their information on the form that you handed them. I'm guessing that's pretty low, right? <laughs> What's fun is we actually, and Rick will be mad at me for this, because when we talked about it, it was do what you're required to do and nothing else, right? Collect the information. But on the form at the institution that I was working at, we actually asked, are you a politically exposed person as well? Because we thought it was important if we're doing due diligence on these people to understand whether they have that heightened risk, right? Some people were actually checking the box. So we did identify some folks that changed the risk profile of their entity because they were politically exposed people. So 
it, on some level, that's kind of nice to know. But back to the question and what Rick said, there's no reason that financial institutions should be required to do that, right? There should be a database that's public. Somebody opens an account as part of your due diligence. You go and you look at that information to see who the beneficial owners are, run them through your systems, whatever you need to do. Use that to risk profile the entity um, and, and have that. So it, and I remember it was nice when they went around and did their roadshow and said, hey, we're proposing this rule. And they had the meeting with, with financial institution folks. And we were able to give feedback. And the, the number one thing was, why are you making us do this? Why aren't you getting some sort of a database where people have to report it? So, and quickly on implementing it, and you know, Rick and I had lots of emails back and forth, and, and we both got to be involved in kind of setting best practice in, in regards to how it worked. That was the most painful thing that we ever did, I think. Aside from doing CIP, which was straightforward and had four things you had to get, it was kind of easy to do in comparison to the beneficial ownership stuff. There was so much gray area and so many things you had to kind of create. What's a what's a trigger event, right? When there's trigger events, you have to reach out and get the information. But we kind of got to create best practice in regards to what a trigger event was. And I guarantee every single institution here has a different list of trigger events and things that they are required to reach out based on their policy to update the beneficial ownership information. Does that make sense? Not really, right? So if the government was was uh, re requiring that these folks had to put the information out there and it was public, it would save everybody a lot of time. That, so, so, go ahead, sorry, yes, sir. so I should take my slapping you back because it occurs to me that, you know, as the rule requires, we're doing CIP when on the beneficial owner information we collect. And as part of that, we're doing our OFAC screening and a PEP screening on that information. So we're not asking it on the form, but we're actually doing exactly the same thing. So I'm sorry I did that. <laughs> so Dennis, you've also um, testified about the importance of beneficial ownership information uh, for law enforcement perspective and I perspective and I think your organization, the retired FBI agents, actually sent in comments on that as well. So given what you've heard, what's, what's your take on all of this? Well, I, I think just with the, the whole beneficial ownership issue, that incorporation information should be captured at the state by the secretaries of state. That, to me, is the, the best solution, and that's not a workable solution. Um, I was asked in 2012 by the Society of Former FBI Agents to start working with people on the Hill about the beneficial ownership issue and, and advocating for it on behalf of law enforcement. So we have written letters, we have, we've done a lot, and I've testified over time and met with a lot of people. I met with uh, the NAS, the National Association of Secretaries of State. Uh, I went to their annual conference. They wild parties. Oh, God. Uh, Rick would have been proud of me because I had a very serious debate. I was probably the most hated person in the room when I, when I strongly suggested that they should be capped. Capturing that information. So you and Rick share that. He's yeah. totally but the, thing is, exactly. the reality <laughs> is that's not going to happen. So the best or the, a good case scenario is that FinCEN be the repository. Because back then, and for a long period of time in Congress, the idea was that the IRS should capture that information and report it. And for law enforcement, that's not workable because we would have all had to get a court order 
to obtain the the uh, the information, and and that just that defeats the purpose. So um, having uh, a repository from FinCEN that law enforcement could access is is certainly not the best case scenario because it would have been better because there's going to be wiggle room between where they get incorporated and what gets reported to FinCEN, much like the challenge that you guys deal with in the banks. But that said, it's still there's still going to be very good information that FinCEN will have that law enforcement can work with much better than they have now. Before I go back to other legislative sections, we've got a question that's um, similar or, or thematically connected to our career advice. But I thought this was uh, something we could get, inf yeah, get input from everybody here. In regards to a career advice for those that don't have a JD or law background uh, that work for a government agency, FBI, DOJ, what advice do you have for folks looking to advance in this arena? Is it even possible? Particularly for individuals at a midpoint in their career who can't necessarily go back to school to earn an advanced degree or restart with a career in the government. So somebody who's interested in this space doesn't have, and I, I'm assuming for the question, maybe not even an accounting background, but probably, you know, there's probably some talent there, and you want to cultivate that talent. If you're at City National, what, what, are you, what do you recommend? And I'll ask Rick the same thing. Yeah, on some level, it, it doesn't really matter you know, what certification you have or what degree you have. It's really about being curious and being uh, good at aggregating information and coming up with ideas and all that kind of stuff. At City National, we had a lot of luck taking people that had no experience whatsoever with the AML world, but they were great, uh, say, an operations manager at a branch. So they already knew the systems. They already knew how to get copies of checks and inquire in our wire system and all that kind of stuff. And then teach them the AML. I think it's easier on some level to do that, to teach somebody the AML if you know that they're curious and diligent and creative and all that kind of thing. So if, if I'm looking at resumes as a BSA officer, I like to see something like a CAMP certification because to me that means that you, you actually kind of went out and, and you had to study for that and you, you know kind of the basics. But in, in many instances, I hired people based on how well they conversed. And, and if you ask them weird questions, what kind of things did they come up with? And if, if you give them a scenario of X, Y, and Z, um, tell me what's interesting about this. You know, write me a SAR based on this information. And I had people that had no experience whatsoever with the AML space write me better stuff than somebody who had learned bad habits at, at an institution or somewhere else. So I would just say, if you're really, really passionate about moving up, just again, ask for stuff, volunteer for things. If, if an opening comes up, go and interview for it. You may find out that, you know, even though you don't feel like you're qualified, I don't know that anybody ever really feels like they're qualified to be a BSA officer. I definitely didn't. I was thrown into it and said, okay, let's do it. But I, I would say if you're thinking about changing your career, just jump in and try it and somebody's going to give you a chance, I think, if, if you have the right attitude and, and you're curious about it. Yeah, I know, Rick, you've actually brought people in from law enforcement to work for you and obviously people from the financial sector. So you, you've been able to pick from the various stakeholder worlds, if you will, and, and for the most part, it's worked out pretty well. It has, but, but I'm with Shotgun. You don't need a law degree. I don't even think you need to have initially had this background. I, I have said many times, and John, I know you've heard me say this, that if I look back, if I was hiring for the role that I first got when I left the government, I wouldn't hire me for that role today. 
because I knew, even though I was at the Federal Reserve for 12 years, I really didn't understand how a bank worked. I mean, I got it from examinations and I could read things, but I really didn't understand the inner workings. And I was at a significant detriment when I first started and I had to learn a lot very quickly. So I don't think you need any of that background. I do agree, though, with Chuck on the um, if you want to advance in this space, getting a certification is I think it's a must. And this is why, because more and more um, and, and we go through it now with every examination I have. One of the questions that we get from our examiners on day one is, show us the qualifications of both you as the AML officer, BSA AML officer, and then kind of your leadership team and their qualifications. So I don't think you have to have the accounting background. I don't think you have to have the legal background, the law enforcement background. I do think you need to really advance in this area. Certification is absolutely one way to do that. And I also agree with Chuck that operations folks, technology folks, they are making a big contribution today to how we look at this AML space. And just saw Will walk into the room. He will tell you that I complain to him all the time about folks that don't have critical thinking. So if they're, if they're not critical thinkers, if you're not really thinking about an issue, figuring out how to address it, no matter what your experience is, I, I think that's a huge uh, detriment to your ability to move forward. But if you are, you can learn all this stuff, absolutely. And I think if you're midpoint in your career and you still want to do this, you should absolutely keep pushing ahead. And I like Chuck's point about applying for jobs, even if you don't think that, that you're the one. The more you let management know you're interested in advancing, the more likely it will happen. Do you have a question in the back? Go ahead, sir. More of a why is it that we can't ask for the qualifications of our regulators? Ask if there are any regulators in the room before we answer. Why don't you say that again in the microphone? We don't have the ability to ask for the qualifications of our regulators before they come because nine times out of ten they end up using our institutions as a training ground for their people. Well, <laughs> dance that one. <laughs> let, let me say, let me say, uh, let me say, uh, you know, sincerely, I've worked my entire career with the regulatory community as a was a regulator. So it's like an and he gap. doesn't hold that against me. It's a mix. It's always been a mix, like it is in our industry. So there are clear times where that's why I asked the question this morning of, of uh, Lisa and the others in terms of training. Because there are clearly times where you're wondering where are you getting your judgment on the saw or something. That's why I think being more transparent about their training becomes pretty important. I think it's clear they go through a process. And examiners definitely go through a process. Um, is it the same we go through? No. I'd like to see the, the legislation, by the way, does talk about training uh, the regulatory community. And I would argue if they're going to do that, if something's going to pass, and I've already offered this up, to folks on the Hill as potential language. Make sure it's done sort of together with the stakeholders. So it's not training just of examiners, training of more training of us, law enforcement. So we all at least are coming from the same book, if you will. Yeah, so John, it's, it's not unfair. Though. I, I was just going to add that same thing about the, the legislation because it's the House Financial Services Committee has that draft legislation and they put specific language in there about regulatory regulators getting AML training. And I think, Rick, you you mentioned 
that, and I incorporated it into my testimony, that that should go beyond um, just AML training to operational training. Right. You know, uh, I think some of us have done this before, but the FFIEC holds week-long training for examiners, and for about a three or four-year period, uh, I would do the one morning on BSA. So they would have five days of training on credit, lend all sorts of obviously examiner issues, and there would be just one half day, nine to 11 on this. And those, so they did invite those of us from the private sector, and we were in there to, to, to give them a better sense of what we see in terms of AML. And it, and it struck me, a quick anecdote that uh, told me that they needed more training or understanding. So I made the same joke about incorporation that I did earlier, where I said in Delaware, you know, they incorporate anything that moves, right? And so we need to get our arms around this like four years ago. In the evaluations that came back that I saw a week later, they said that it was offensive to somebody in the audience, examiners in the audience, that that person was from Delaware, and I made a comment about Delaware law. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? I mean, you can evaluate anything else that we did in terms of the training, but you were upset that I factually pointed out that your state exists in large part because it's the home of corporations and that you needed to do more. That told me a bit that that doesn't mean that that particular examiner was an AML examiner, but it's a little scary to think that there was somebody from one of the agencies who thought that was offensive. So um, that doesn't prove the point, but it does tell you they do at least try to bring in the private sector they need to do a lot more of that, and vice versa. We can certainly learn from them as well, but I think they need both. And I, and I know you've done it. Yeah, no, I have done that. I, I mean, I, I, you know, in all seriousness, we see vast array of skill set both from the supervisory agencies and within our own institutions. Um, one of the things that I've been seeing the ability to do a little bit more than than I used to is to, in a good way push back if we think that um, that somebody in a supervisor agency may have gotten it wrong. So we've had the ability, and, and that's because I've gotten the support of my senior leadership to challenge rather than just accept all the time. Now, sometimes I will make that challenge and say, you can have multiple viewpoints. This is mine. I'd like you to think about it. Other times I will say, you know, let's sit down and go through the regulation because I just don't agree with the position you're taking. Sometimes successful, sometimes not. Um, but the fact that there's more willingness both by my management to let me do that, um, which I think has been a challenge in the past, and for them to listen um, in some instances, has I've found that to be useful as well. Dennis, the, the legislation contemplates uh, a, a number of things. But one of the things that sort of caught my eye was a prior, prioritization, if you will, of uh, illegal actions to look for. So there's some thought process, and I think part of this came out of a response to the Clearinghouse or uh, Bank Policy Institute that uh, it would be more efficient if banks were given direction from Treasury, law enforcement, what have you. Now, given the fact that we have these expanding challenges anyway, all sorts of crimes, a, how would that work if it would work? And B, what would be the potential issues that we as practitioners should think about if they were able to pass some legislation that said, 
you should focus on these, I'm making a number of these five items, or these six items, because we have a hundred items to worry about. So what, from a practical standpoint, what would happen? Well, and uh, i like to just start right there. Um, practical versus theoretical. Because I think a lot of the law, there's really a theoretic side to it and what they're thinking, but what's the practical application is what, what we really we really need to look at. So I think a lot of that comes, and if you set, we, we need to set the table a little bit on that, that what Congress is looking at and what this is influenced by is the amount of SARS that are filed and how many SARS actually are used by law enforcement or perceived to be used. And I'm I'm a proponent that all SARS are looked at in one way or another. At a high level, when I ran the financial crimes program, especially when I had TFOS, we started data mining and every SAR got touched. Now, that doesn't mean every SAR is useful or it, gets, it, 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 it plays a role in an investigation, but it's important because we use that for trend analysis. Uh, but moving on on, on, on the question... I think what, what they're looking for here is the feedback, and Rick, you hit that this morning, the feedback from law enforcement as to what you should be looking at or what the scenarios are. There's been a great example, what you guys talked about this morning, with the human human trafficking and human smuggling. I mean, that's the best case scenario of examples of success. Now, TFOS, what they were doing on a more limited basis, and you're, Rick, again, involved in that working group, that working group has evolved to a point where they are exchanging with some of the major banks the information or giving them the scenarios because they have the touch points where, where this is the most problematic. Realistically, and again, from a practical standpoint, law enforcement doesn't have the capacity to share that information on a regular basis. So you've got to have those kind of different types of working groups and situations where you can do that. I wish we did because I remember... When I ran the financial crimes program, I met with Jim Sloan, who was the director of FinCEN at the time, on a regular basis. And Jim, to his credit, kept pounding me over the head saying, you got to provide feedback. And I think one of the things that this House legislation, uh, the proposed legislation called for that I thought was really, really good was the 314A, to change 314A so that law enforcement now provides feedback, what you guys intended in the first place. John and Rick were both involved. In, in, in the beginning, back before the Patriot Act, in the information sharing. And that was the intent, I think, from you guys, is that law enforcement should be sharing that type of information. There are an incredible number of impediments that they still have to get through, because you do have grand jury secrecy. Um, in the age of terrorism and in counterintelligence, you have classified information. And another thing, Rick was really a, a good proponent for it, and he came to me when I was in the Bureau about getting security clearances for people in financial institutions, because then we could share more of the classified information, information you couldn't otherwise get. And that's done on the limits of TFOS in the last meeting, actually had temporary security clearances for all the bankers. And so they could share classified information. I don't think, I was disappointed because I didn't think they, they shared to the level that they should have. And they, that's going back to your earlier point about my interaction. I told them that afterward that, you know, you guys, you missed a great opportunity because you, it was good, but it wasn't great. And here's how it could have been great because you could have given that, that much more on that stuff. And actually, after that fact, the Department of Justice criticized them and, and actually reviewed the fact that they were, hand, they, they were providing 
investigative information from ongoing investigations and classified information to non-law enforcement uh, because they felt that was a breach of, uh, of, of, um, of confidentiality or law enforcement confidentiality. And it just shows that there's so many impediments that are going to be out there and continue to be out there in these situations. The, uh, the 314B issue is also interesting. There was a, I don't remember it's still in the legislation, but it was there back in the last Congress. And it was to clarify that 314B could be for an expansive view of financial crime. It wasn't just traditional money laundering. Uh, and obviously that would make a lot more sense because the, the movement of illicit funds to c- commit all sorts of crimes, if you could share that information voluntarily and register, it'd be useful. And I remember that I saw the provision and I and I actually testified and said in it, uh, not in the testimony, but in the Q&A, I said, and I just say, we're, we're very encouraged by the expansion of 314B. And that's uh, all I said. And then after the fact, I got basically a couple of emails saying, why did you say expansion? As soon as you said that, the privacy side went nuts. And I said, well, yeah, you're right. Bad, bad choice of words. It should be, that was the original intent of 314B. I know because some of us helped draft it. We expected it to be broader than just traditional money laundering, but because we characterized it as an expansion, that was off the table. So um, the reason to even mention that is words matter. You know, if we're going to try to figure out legislative changes, you got to understand that people will perceive what you say potentially differently. Uh, but you've experienced dealing with, in your previous role, 314B. Uh, what was the upside and downside? And would that, let's not call it an expansion, clarification, would that have, would that have helped uh, when you were trying to get information from other institutions? I think 314B has a major flaw in that it's not required. I was did a, a law enforcement panel a few minutes ago and asked the group, I said, how many VSA officers in the room are not signed up to do 314? And there was way too many hands that wow. went up, right? So to me, 314B was the best way to not file a sum, right? So you have a transaction that comes in, comes from another bank. It's an anomalous wire that's never happened before. It's a, a, new, a new counterparty for your client. Without knowing what the source of funds is, you might have to file a suspicious activity. You can reach out via 314B and get a quick answer within the 30-day period, figure it out, not file the SAR. I think that's great. So expanding 314 is, uh, would be amazing because I think you'd get more sharing of information. You'd actually file better and less SARs probably if you did it. Um, but since it's not required, there are many institutions that say, okay, you guys answer 314Bs when you can because it's not really a priority because it's not required. So the immediacy of it uh, is the biggest problem. I think it's a great tool and it's 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 not used enough. Um, but until it's made required, I don't know that it, it's going to ever be fully utilized. Rick, before, you, Rick before, now, you say, before, before you say you, you hate regulations of all kinds, which we know that that's true, <laughs> Um, on, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have a job if there was no regulation. Exactly. On 314B, the criticism that I've heard, and you can tell me if this is accurate, is a number of our community bank partners say that the big guys won't respond to us. They'll argue we're not doing your work for you, which I think is a little facetious, frankly. But uh, they get all sorts of requests in 314B, and a lot of the small banks they're looking for help, but they tell us time and time again. 
but the big banks ignore them. And frankly, I think that's problematic. So maybe requiring it isn't your cup of tea, but it certainly would change that. But give us, give us your well. So two good points. I understand the point that Chuck's making, and I've heard that commentary as well. I, I think that's about developing a relationship, and you can figure out how to make that work. I, I am not in favor of making it a requirement. It's just one more thing that gets a lot of oversight done. So you then. So have, would your issue be? Well, sorry, no, yeah. your issue would be more with the regulators using it as a checkbox uh, right. supervision issue, and that could lead to penalties and criticism exactly. versus if you required it and that wasn't the oversight. I know you have to have that oversight, yeah. but then you wouldn't be as concerned. I, I wouldn't be, okay. but, but, but yeah. we know that's not going to happen. Right. But, but it also goes to, I, I mean, maybe you all haven't done this. I, I think you could give me any fact pattern and 99% of the time, I could get it to work in 314B. So I don't really see a big issue about expanding or whatever it is, because I, I think you can get it to work today. Um, I do think, and and I saw this two banks ago um, with 314B, we were getting a lot of requests that really were just do my due diligence for me. And and you could see that in the request, and that's not the, the role of 314B. Is that training? So, Is that a training? I, it could be a training, or it could be, hey, let's ask what's the harm in asking, right. and then we don't have to do it ourselves. Uh, but so... I, I mean, I see the, I, yeah, I understand the reasoning why one might think making a requirement, I'd obviously be adamantly opposed. But it's the same thing, just to go back to, you know, prioritizing what you look at uh, in terms of potential criminal activity. I go back to, we were never supposed to be the cops here. So the idea that we're going to look for spe specific types of activity kind of bothers me overall. I mean, if, if we get back to the true reason we have or we were supposed to have the whole, so our process was to identify activity that didn't look right, suspicious activity, and let law enforcement take the next step and figure out whether or not it's illegal activity or not. If we're now saying, let's look for human trafficking, terrorist finance, and I don't even know how you look for that, drug money laundering, things like that, these are the five things we're now supposed to focus on. First of all, it really flies in the face of what, what the whole process was about, Plus, I'm not sure how you get there. I mean, I'm really not without a whole bunch of typologies. Right. But isn't that what has happened in some of these cases? Oh, yeah, there absolutely. are certainly indicators and red flags that you've helped produce in a bunch of space. Uh, so in some cases, the bank is making a call. We believe it's X. Again, they're not required to. I agree with that. But they will say in the narrative that, or check the box, the 50 boxes or whatever. Oh, right. So you have the box. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. Right. But but. Still, the underlying requirement is tell somebody about it, let the experts figure out whether it is or not. So, Dennis, having somebody who's used SARS, and obviously now you're training on it, um, respond to Rick's uh, comments on that from, from this perspective. As a law enforcement official, you were obviously getting the information. It, was it useful? Maybe that's the wrong word. But when the bank made a call on what they thought it was, did that matter, or you folks sort of knew what you were looking for? All you wanted to do was get the data, and then you would decide, based on your expertise, what the crime was. Or did you look and say, well, Rick's bank thinks it's elder abuse, so I'm going to pursue it that way. How, how does that work? Well, first, just taking a step back, that information is invaluable, really. However it's coming across, one thing, 
we I was the direct beneficiary. Folks that work for me were the direct beneficiaries of SARS. And I can't speak enough about how important they are and how much we use them. And one thing that troubles me is when I hear Rick, and it's not just Rick, I hear this from what you just said about being obligated now that you're the cops and you have to. I don't like that from where I sit because that's my job. And, and all I all I would want, and I think law enforcement should want, is for you to identify suspicious activity, report it as the suspicious activity, and let it unfold from there. Because oftentimes, what that that activity appears to be isn't what it really is. And as an investigation unfolds, there's a nugget of information in that SAR that leads to a much bigger problem than 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 what's there. Or to John's point, you know, if if, if you make a, an assumption that, that this is elder fraud, when perhaps it's 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 not necessarily elder fraud, but it's it, it, it it's a it's a, a pointer that there's a greater systemic fraud problem. You know, I, I don't want to get distracted on that. I want to I want to go into that and I want to use that information for for lead value and to develop my case. And so and and it's unfortunate because you hear this all the time. In the industry that we did, that, and Congress said that when I testified, actually in the last hearing, uh, about banks now feeling like they're the investigator and they have to, they have to do the job of law enforcement. And you know, it's unfortunate that that we've evolved. And I think that in part goes to regulatory expectations versus regulatory requirements. And and so, for me, I love to take that saw. What I want in a SAR is an impact statement up front. That tells me why you think that's suspicious, and and from there I can take it and 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 develop it and and see where it's gonna gonna lead and, and use that to again start build toward my my prosecutable case. Before we we a few more minutes left, but the one thing about SARS that I want to mention that uh, does frustrate me: uh, those that are looking to reform the process, which I agree should be reformed. We shouldn't have no SAR SARS. That's just Ridiculous. The 90-day rule is totally made up, and these banks get criticized for this. But I've seen some suggest that the proof of value of SARS is whether or not an individual SAR resulted in a specific contact from law enforcement on that SAR. And so the numbers, uh, if you can even believe the numbers, are less than 2 or 3%. And that's now a given I've seen in testimony from others that aren't even in the space. Some professor testified and said, yeah, the value of SARS has been proven to be less than 5%. Think, folks, if we're actually going to see some reform, let's be intelligent about this. The notion that somehow you're going to get uh, every SAR is going to be a contact made from law enforcement is not only unreasonable, it's illogical. And as Dennis said, they do look at the SARS. They look at them for a variety of reasons. I've used this example before. This is a SAR review team in Northern Virginia, just like there is in many other regions around the country. And they physically look at every SAR in their region in paper form, which is a little silly, but I think that's the only way they can do it. They'll sit in a room because we've been in their meetings where when the meetings are over, we can't go in that room. And all those officials go in, they look at every single SAR. Look at, they look at them all. Now, you could say that that, sh that shows whatever, but it doesn't mean they're not valuable. Should there be some potential change in how you're required to file? Yeah, sure. I think that that to me stands uh, is very is very practical. But the notion that somehow because you didn't get contact on an individual SAR that that's going to move the needle, I think you're going to lose the argument by doing that. So, um, John, let me just a couple of comments on that. 
I, I agree. You know, with, 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 I want to disagree. Sorry. So after you're done, I'm going to disagree. No. Um, just, I, I think that who's driving you home yeah, today? <laughs> the SARS uh, again. There's so much value in, in, in SARS and, and the, our ability to, to data mine. One of the things that I've done is, and I'm happy to share it with anybody who would like it, I've put together a life cycle of a SAR and a chart. And and I, I think that, that that's telling because it demonstrates that all SARS are touched in some way. And um, we'll, we'll send that out, yeah. by the way. That's an old yeah. chart, but I like it. Yeah, I've yeah. stolen it, yeah. used it many yeah. times. I'll, we'll send that around. No, go ahead, Chuck. So just... I'm not going to technically disagree, but I think that the feedback from law enforcement and reaching out about SARS would be benefit financial institutions in many ways, right? So if, if you are tuning a monitoring system, one of the really only ways you know that a SAR that you filed was good is if law enforcement reaches out and asks for the back of information, right? So in my institution, it was 2 or 3% of the time, sometimes 5, it depended on the month, how many times law enforcement reach out about specific SARS. So using that information, you can say, okay, they reached out about this one. This one at least was used potentially to, to start a case, was used as evidence in a case. Maybe it even ended up being an indictment or something, right? So that is good feedback. And my mantra is I would like them to have to give us something on every single song. So don't shake your head. If, if, <laughs> in simplest terms, it could be, and I, I've said this before, like a social media thing, right? If they go in and they yeah, look at a SAR, so if they look at it, there's value. They look at it and there's value. They give you a thumbs up. They look at it and there isn't any value. It's a thumbs down. Oh, we are uh, such in the Twitter world. If they use it, if they use it, and it, it indicts somebody, they give you a heart, right? If you get feedback <laughs> on those SARS at that level, you would be able to say, hey, this rule, I'm getting all sorts of great SARS out of this, right? This rule sucks. It's not getting any thumbs up. It's not getting any hearts. So I don't have to do it anymore, right? So the feedback that we could get, if we could get feedback on every SAR, just as, hey, this is cool, not somebody calling, not somebody writing me a letter saying this was good, but these were used, these were these were beneficial, it would be helpful. So a SAR emoji, if you yes. come up with one, we'll yes. propose that in the next testimony. Greg, I'll give you the last one here. I, I, so we know, I mean, the filing numbers are over a million. How's that ever going to happen? And, and by the wait, way, we do get... You go, in and, you go in and you read the SAR. How easy would it be to check the box? So, right. But, so, by the way, one person reads it, maybe another person reads it, has a different opinion. Right. When you get one doesn't boxes. like it, one does like it. <laughs> but, but you know, the... the but it moves to the top, right? The, it's the most liked SAR of the day. But the <laughs> practical value is, and, and I've heard this... How, how, how young arguments. are you? <laughs> is a lot of times the SAR, the, the SAR, so the SAR we file validates something the law enforcement already knew, so they don't need the backup data from us. It just validates what they already knew and they're moving forward. In your scenario, that would be, you know, we get the thumbs up anyhow. So, uh, I, yeah, I mean, there's no response for that. I don't know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I was going to uh, say, I got enough. I got enough. <laughs> All right, we're going to go into a break. All I can tell you is I really appreciate not only chatting with everybody, but um, I'm interested in continuing to interview people in the community. So if you'd like me to sit down with somebody, let me know. I have a lot of fun doing that. Uh, as I mentioned, I did the one recently with, with Don Ford, who did talk about the value of SARS. I asked him specifically about feedback. You know, the thing this morning, I, I guess the, the, the last thing I'll say about this, I'm just surprised 
that FinCEN stopped doing the SAR activity review because while it wasn't perfect feedback, it gave you so many different items. I just don't get why they're not doing that. They're talking about all these changes when this was a 30-page document. So it doesn't make sense to me that not, they're not doing this. I hope some of the career uh, information advice is helpful. The only thing I'd add to that is I think communication is key. You have to know how to write. Okay, so whether you're doing SARS or writing reports, one of the things that'll help elevate you career-wise is being able to communicate and write. And not everybody can. They need to work on that because that's something I we both teach classes, uh, grad and undergrad, and I'm just amazed when people can't write very well. So you want to work with them and you want to because they know they understand the content and subject matter, but it really helps in the workplace. If you have somebody communicate well, you can you can teach them anything. And if they can communicate to senior management and regulators, it's great. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, thanks so much for the time, and let's thank our panel.